Now, Heavenly Father, we ask for your touch upon our hearts. Father, we just need your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding. These truths are spiritually discerned. Therefore, we need your spirit to help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I have said, uh, we have returned to our studies through the Old Testament where we find ourselves in the middle of the book of Judges where we left, last left off there in the middle with exploits judge of judge number five, uh, chapter six through eight. And so we're in the middle of a 400-year period of spiritual darkness in between the time that Israel has... Uh, been settled in the land under Joshua, and those 400, 500 years in between the settling of the land and the first King Saul and in 1 Samuel. So our book falls right in the middle there. Dark days, as you re will recall, will definitely have some context so that we can dive into chapter 7. But dark days, it was days marked by um, the uh, verse... In chapter 17, verse 6 of Judges, that said, it was a period of time when everybody did what seemed right in their own eyes, and that is called relativism, and it was alive and well 3,200 years ago. And uh, that was a problem because the Proverbs say, he who trusts in himself is a fool. That is Proverbs 28, 26. I'm sure you wanted the reference for that so that you could hang it on your refrigerator. <laughs> uh, Proverbs 14, 12, another um, really straight shooting scripture that says there is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end it leads to death. And so uh, Psalm 119, verse 105 says God gave us his word so that we wouldn't have to trust in our own understanding, but to lean upon him, his word, a lamp unto our, our feet, a light unto our path. And so that was not what the Israelites were following. And so there was a rebellion and the sin cycle, as we called it, um, rebellion. And then God would raise up really uh, discipline, uh, allowing the enemy nations to get an upper hand, and then they would cry out and repent, and God would raise up a rescuer or called judge, hence the, the book of Judges. And so if you're taking notes, Roman numeral number one, just for even context, uh, number one, God's plan with a weak man. So every judge in this book really brings an emphasis, a spiritual teaching or a spiritual lesson. And our lesson from uh, the 100-verse narrative, it's the longest narrative of any judge because I think it's got the most important truth for us, uh, is this, God uses weak and ordinary uh, men and women to do incredible things for him. And so that's really the uh, truth that Gideon is going to teach us, how God can use average men and women to do incredible things for him. God loves to use weak people and insurmountable odds and impossible situations to show off his power 
and glory. And so we saw what was in God's thinking when he was doing this whole thing with Gideon and Israel and the Midianites was that uh, Israel needed to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was the one at work and they wouldn't be rescued or blessed or given the victory in any way through their own efforts. And this is something that God is repeating over and over uh, to them. So the choice of a weak man physically and spiritually is not a real uh, man filled with faith or strength, Gideon. Uh, the dramatic reduction of his army, which we're going to talk about, and um, the odd military strategy that God gives him. These things about uh, Gideon all serve to drive home the same point. The Lord saying, it's me. It's not your, the size of your army. It's not your uh, intellect. It's not your strategy. It's not your creativity. It's not your weaponry. It's me. And in order for him to get that fact through to them, he has to choose somebody like Gideon, who is totally weak. And obviously, if a victory comes through Gideon and through this small army of 300 men against 135,000, then all glory and honor will go to Jesus, will go to the Lord. And so that is what's going on here. So for seven years, as your opening verses there in chapter 6 tell you, uh, seven years of hell and torment under these bad boys, the Midianites, who would swarm in like a bunch of locusts and just strip everything bare. So at harvest time especially, the Midianites would come in and take all of the harvest away, leaving them to starve. And they not only that, they would kill the livestock and just pillage the place. And so after seven years of that, the scriptures say it was because they had uh, breached faith with Yahweh and they had started to worship Baal and at the shrine prostitutes places. And so God brought this upon them, the scriptures say. And after seven years, they repent, they cry out, and God says, okay, I'm gonna raise up a rescuer. His name is Gideon. And God's choice is the skinny, beanpole, timid, 143-pound uh, guy. It doesn't say that in the scriptures, but that's what I picture. And plus, that was a private shout-out to somebody I know who weighs 143 pounds. So, a guy. It's okay, really. We don't care about our weight. I'm not going to name him. But it's not me, just, just so you know. All right, chapter 6, verse 11. Uh, is saying, shows how God is calling this guy. He comes to, to Gideon and he says, as you recall, you the man, uh, listen, Hercules, let's get busy. We got some rescuing to do. And Gideon is taken aback. Are you kidding me? And God just has to bring this truth. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now that's a New Testament truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. When Paul is complaining about a thorn in the flesh and the Lord says, listen, your weakness is a perfect backdrop for me to bring my strength into the situation. And so really where it says my power is made perfect in your weakness, he, he's really saying it's a perfect backdrop for me to be able to do uh, my work in your life and have you not get mixed up in your own heart and think that it's your own efforts 
that is helping you along because it's really uh, the Lord. And so uh, chapter 6, verse 16, I will be with you and you will strike them down. That's, that's the key. Look, I will be with you. God, Emmanuel, God with you. I will be with you and you will do the due diligence. You will do the work, but I will be blessing and bringing victory. So you'll recall Gideon gets pumped there. The last part of chapter 6, now heading into 7. He tears down the neighborhood shrines to Baal or Baal, as you should pronounce uh, his name. It causes quite a stir, as you remember, because, of course, it was in uh, his backyard, and all the men were accustomed to worshiping there at the shrine prostitute's place, and uh, he just tears it down because we're not going forward with God, who is holy, until we deal with our sin issues in our lives. And so he tears those things down. And once that's done, uh, then the next thing is, it's ready for the battle. But at the end of chapter 6, Gideon kind of swallows hard. He sees the Midianites on yonder hills. And he needs more assurance. So he says, Lord, listen, uh, I know you already did this fire thing with me. But I'm going to lay down a rug. And tomorrow morning, I want the rug to be sopping wet and everything else around it really dry, like the grains of sand in the desert. And so God does that. And then in the morning, he realizes, you know, that could just have happened, maybe. So he says, can we reverse the order? Uh, Can we make the fleece, the rug dry, and the ground just soggy and wet? That would be harder. So God says, no problem. There you go, kid. Can we move forward now? And Gideon's ready to go. So Roman numeral number two, going into chapter seven now. We still uh, have already covered some of this ground, so I'm still summarized. Then we'll dive into the text. Okay, so if you're taking notes, Roman numeral number two, uh, God's plan with limited resources along the same lines. So he doesn't mind your weakness. In fact, he's looking for weakness. He knows how weak we are. The Bible says in Psalm 103, he's a father who has compassion. He knows knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He understands that. And so with our limited resources, which is kind of a theme throughout the whole Bible in the New Testament with the five loaves and the two little fish, I mean, it's cover to cover. I don't really need what you have, but when you offer what you do have, You plus me and your limited resources can get a lot done. And so that's really point number two, chapter seven. It's time for the battle of the century. And we got to reinforce the lesson of Zechariah 4, verse 6. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And then Proverbs chapter 21, verse 31 The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. In other words, it's irresponsible to say that we don't do anything. We do our due diligence. We get the horse ready. We go to school. We learn. We work hard. We we exercise disciplines. 
But the Bible says in all of that, that is not the source of the blessing or the victory, that God is behind those things. And we cannot look to those things to rescue us or to provide the security for our soul because those things are temporary. Those things fail. And so he's trying to get us to look beyond our limited selves and to him. And so, as you recall, Team Israel has 32,000 at the beginning, uh, Midianites 135,000. So he's already outgunned, outmatched, and Gideon's praying for more, obviously, and God starts asking for less. <laughs> so uh, God is going to uh, reduce them in two stages. So... Uh, chapter 7, verse 3 is stage 1. The Lord says, okay, first of all, you got too many gods, 32,000 too many, uh, lest Israel. And here's what it says. Boast to me that she saved herself in her own strength. Interesting how he's saying, I really don't want to be provoked I don't want to hear those words that look what we did with our own strength. So your 32,000 has to go down. I have to do this to you so that you don't make a deadly mistake. And so uh, two-thirds, he says, who he invokes his own law from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, there was a law that said if anybody was afraid, if any soldier had fear in his heart and his heart wasn't in the battle, he could go home. Because God knows that fear on the battleground is contagious. So there's a provision in the law that if your heart wasn't in it, you can go home, no problem, no questions asked, right? And so he invokes that law and he says, anybody afraid? He says, tell them to go home. Well, two thirds of the army, go home and they kind of melt away and that leaves 10,000 and so he's like okay 10,000 it's not that bad it's still a lot of people and then the uh, then the second phase of operations shrink down the army uh, a secret test he says look 10,000 guys against 135,000 still too much here I've devised a secret little test you tell all of the 10,000 guys go get a drink of water from the creek and there's this little secret test. The guys who lap the water like dogs go to the left. The guys who are more civilized and drink in more traditional manners uh, go to the right. 9,700 of them are more civilized. 300 of them get down like dogs and lap. And then the Lord says to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped like doggies, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. That's verse 7 of chapter 7. Well, needless to say, our Hercules, Gideon, is going to need a pep talk, and God's not opposed about that. That brings us right up to our text where we left off. Verse 8. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the uh, provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. By the way, he's told him that three times. 
And you'll see how patient God is to give his people uh, assurance when they need it and when they face tests like this. Verse 10, Gideon, if, if you're still afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the otherites had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Now they've got 300 lappers, all right? Verse 13, Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. Oh, look at this. What a coincidence. I had this dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Wow. So let's pause there. Roman numeral number three. God's assurance in times of anxiety. God wants his people to be encouraged, to be fear, uh, fearless and, and have no anxiety. Uh, he, he goes to great lengths to uh, calm our hearts and to inspire and to strengthen us. He knows what he's called you to do is daunting. I mean, he wants marriages to be uh, undivided. He wants people to live uh, beyond their sinfulness. He wants us to deny self and pick up cross and follow him. He's asking people who have a sinful nature to be holy people. He knows that the task that he's asking us to do is daunting. And therefore, he will give us assurance that he is with us. And it's very creative and entertaining, his methods here. He lets the encouragement come out of the enemy's mouths. And I think that's incredible. He says, listen, Gideon, if you don't believe me, I've told you three times. I've done some miracles. But go down and listen to them and let the enemy predict who's going to win this battle. Just put your ear up to the tent. You're going to hear a conversation that's going to blow your mind. And then you will have the confidence that you need. It's no accident that the man dreamed the dream that night. It's no accident that Gideon picked his tent to eavesdrop at. It's no accident that he's telling the dream at the exact time Gideon arrives. It's no accident that the other soldier actually has heard who's leading God's army and predicts that it's Gideon. And he even knows his father's name, son of Joash, the Israelite, in case Gideon is thinking, well, maybe he means somebody else. <laughs> you know? So it's just incredible. So uh, starring in the dream, two things. Around, when the Bible says loaf, it means our word bun, all right? So the five loaves and the two fish, they're little buns. And this word here is a barley bun, and barley is the poor man's grain. And so we've got this little bun rolling into a tent and overturning the tent. Do not picture your tent 
from Big Five. It is a military tent with iron pegs and reinforcement. It's a big, monstrous, well-secured thing. And so we got this little bun rolling in with such impact that this military operation is turned inside out. Uh, that's just an incredible thing. So, uh, you know, he arrives there and uh, Ahmed says, you know, allow me to uh, interpret this. I just named him Ahmed uh, because it's from that part of the world and it just sounded like a guy's name from there. So Ahmed, Ahmed says, listen, here's what I love about this. He says, uh, this can only be one thing. Oh, let's rule out all other possibilities, he says. I know exactly what this is. That little barley loaf is that little Jewish farmer coming in, rolling with such force that he destroys the whole Midianite army. Plain and simple, we're doomed. Gideon wins. We lose. Now, do you remember when Popeye ate his spinach? When Popeye ate his spinach, you know, it went in, I don't know, I mean, it just, all of a sudden, it just went, you know, and then his arms became as wide as his thighs, and it was just, it was always my favorite part, actually, because I knew once he got his spinach, man, watch out, heads are gonna roll. And boy, this guy got his spiritual spinach. He heard? From God, God convinced his soul, I am with you in this thing. I have ordained your victory. I've gone before you. It's a done deal. But his soul got convinced. He couldn't write that off. He couldn't say, well, you know, they just, everybody has dreams. You know, I mean, God made it so incredibly to the point that he couldn't just uh, say, uh, this has nothing to do with me, but he took it to heart. Listen to this quote. What confidence, what zeal, what courage, when the soul is convinced of the abiding, loving presence of God who's working on the behalf of his beloved, that's when we slay our Goliaths, when we walk on the water, and when we send demons flying for cover in the name of the Lord. Let God convince you. You know, it's one thing to have a general word. You know, for God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. That's a great one. But it's really nice when I find out from God who just deems it fit to tell me about this particular issue and how it's going to end. I mean, here's what I'm talking about. Like with Martha, with the brother who dies, Lazarus. And the Lord says, what are you crying about? Don't you know your brother will rise? And she goes, yes, Lord, I know. In the end, we'll all rise. I understand that. But Jesus is saying, oh, no, yes, that's the general principle. But in this particular situation, show me the body. 
because in this particular problem of yours, I am going to be the solution and Lazarus is not going to rise so much at the end. Today, this day, show me the body because Lazarus, your Lazarus is coming up today. It's very nice, yes, to have a general promise. Yeah, I know this problem's going to work out somehow. I don't know. But it's really nice when God says, uh, you're not going to lose the house. Well, yeah, I know you're going to general promise, provide all my needs, but I don't know what that really will look like. But when he says to you, you're not going to go bankrupt. You're not filing that. So I'm going to open a door over here, and you know that you know. And really, the only way that you know that you know is after, because you think that you know that you know, and then you didn't know that you knew. And it's a big mess. So honestly, do you know what I'm saying? You look back, like when I was told in a very spiritual uh, setting with the anointing of the Lord in an elevator with somebody who shouldn't have had the information that they had that I was going to be okay and survive my cancer. It was phenomenal. And I knew God had told me, you're not going to die from this cancer 10 years ago, and here I am. The doctor said you only have a 40% chance to survive. But then the Lord breathed on me a specific knowledge about my situation. Yes, I knew that if I would have died, everything would work out, and Barb and the kids would be okay, and all of this general idea. But I needed to know, and, and sometimes he tells us, and sometimes he doesn't. But I wanted to know, what about this? And that's what he did for Gideon. He said, Listen up. I got a word for you in this battle right here. Your Goliath is going over. When you get a word like that, it's sweetness of sweetness. It's honey to your soul. It is sugar in your mouth. It is, I'm just thinking uh, on the top of my head. This, this sickness is not unto death or stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Where the Lord will fight for you, you need only be still. Or that time when Paul's on the boat and everybody thinks they're going to die and God sends an angel and says, don't be afraid, Paul. God has graciously given you all the lives who sail with you. You're going to make it through this. You see, Paul already knew something good's going to happen here, even if I end up in heaven. But it was really sweet to know, oh, by the way, don't be afraid because this boat is going through or you're not going to perish on it. So, awesome. Um, Gideon runs back. He hears this. He, he connects the dots. He's pumped. He runs back to his 300 lappers. He's singing worship choruses, worshiping the Lord. And, of course, who wouldn't be? He rouses the troops and lays out his strategy. Let's finish up. 15 all the way through, and we'll be done. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, verse 15, he worshiped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianites camp, Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. You'll notice that the 
strategy is a little peculiar. You know, watch me, verse 17, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reach the reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bethshita, uh, toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah, sounds like Hawaii, near Tabith. Uh, Verse 23, Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters uh, of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah, they also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They named these places after uh, their execution there. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Hmm. Roman numeral number four, God's unorthodox strategies. You know, it does not say in the Bible God works in mysterious ways, but, you know, it's true. We can't argue that he does work in mysterious ways. He takes a timid, weak soldier like Gideon. He's got 300 people versus 135,000. And now he's got trumpets, torches enclosed in jars. Uh, there's zero chance of self Congratulation uh, going on here. It will be a God-inspired surprise attack. That's what God's got going on. Verses 17 through 20, uh, Gideon gives each guy a trumpet to blow, which was a shofar, uh, a ram's horn, a jar to break, and a torch to burn. Uh, now, the jar and the torch, you can kind of picture as a hurricane lamp. Um, around the maybe maybe the clay or glass or whatever they used in those days, and and so imagine the start that it caused in the pitch dark, uh, pitch silent night. Most of them are asleep. It's about eleven o'clock at night. Uh, Three hundred trumpets blast in close proximity. A loud, deafening three hundred smashing of the pottery or the glass, the jars. And then this blinding light of 300 torches out of nowhere surrounding them. The sound and appearance of a much larger army than 300 people. 
You can imagine the, the camels, which, said, which it said as many as the sands of the seashore. When they heard that and saw that, that uh, they were spooked. And I'm sure there was a stampede. And then, so that there was no um, confusion, they're yelling, the sword of the Lord, the sword of Gideon. Now, you remember, they already knew about Gideon. And so what they had dread had come upon them. And so they, God heightened their own natural panic and fear that the Midianites just started swinging blindly, confused, with camels all over the place, and there were just 120,000 of them fell, your text says, 15,000 flee, and down the southeast caravan route, and the Israelite army is in hot pursuit. And there's a general call that goes out for help. Probably many from the organized uh, original army comes down to help them at the Jordan. Oreb, uh, the one guy they catch, his name is Raven, means raven. And Zeb means wolf. You know, it just dawned on me that 3,200 years ago, uh, images for darkness uh, carried through all the way. The wolf and the raven. Images still to this very day, 3,000 years later, uh, these are two bad guys who are caught and God blesses the army that's been enlarged somewhat and they've gone after the bad guys. Now, next week, we're going to look at chapter 8 and the story's not quite over. Um, the title next week will be The Danger of Success because apparently uh, Gideon doesn't handle the victory very well. The Proverbs say a person is tested by the praise they receive. Not just telling a person's character or nature when they're going through the fire of trials and tribulation. But it's also very revealing to watch somebody who's being blessed and who's successful. That reveals a lot. And we're going to see, unfortunately, that Gideon has got some weakness in that area. So, closing, the lessons thus far are very beautiful. I'm going to close with a quote from one of my favorite commentators, Warren Wiersbe, as he concluded. He said, you know, when the church starts to depend on bigness, big buildings and big crowds and big budgets and big givers and big speakers and big productions, then faith can become misplaced and hinder God's blessing. When leaders depend on their education and skill and experience rather than in God, then God looks for a Gideon instead. So, do you have a house? Do you have a couple houses? That's really nice, but it's not about your house. Don't put your trust in the fact that you own your home outright. That can change in a minute, the Lord says. Put your trust in the Lord. Do you, are you really smart? Are you just like really uh, intellectual? You have academic abilities? That's not where you lean your hope. It's the one who gave you those gifts. 
Do you have any kind of ability? Is your church a good church? Your church is a good church because God is a good God. That's the answer. We, we tend to look at, you know, you got an IRA? Do you feel really good about it? I, I think you should. But the Bible biblically warns you that cast a glance at that IRA and everything could just go. Your hope, your security, the reason that you can sleep good tonight better not be that you own your home, you got a good car, and you got an IRA. Or that you're smart, or you got a good job, or you're promising future. None of these things, though, they are very much uh, appreciated and very good things. None of them can be the place of the Lord in your life. And when we look to those things to help us sleep good at night, at few, well, at least I've got this, you need to go to bed and say, few, at least I've got the Lord that his spirit is in my life and he has guaranteed me eternal life. He is the source of my security. Some trust in horses, some in chariots, some in iras, some in houses, some in careers. Just make your list and put it in Psalm 20, verse 7. But we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your good blessings. We just look to the one who's blessed us, not to the blessing. We're very glad to know you, Father God. When we get to heaven, even when we get to heaven, we're going to look for a face. What, what good will heaven be? The streets of gold and all the beauty that the Bible describes heaven as. If we don't see our Lord and Savior, that's the whole point. It's Jesus, the one who bled and died for us. The Lord of glory, the Lamb of God. So Father, help us gain proper perspective and look only to God for our source of strength, victory, and blessing in this life and in the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen.